Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am bringing another guest and another Longtime friend, gosh, Tim, over 20 years. I think we've known each it's other. Been but, a while. <laughs> oh, a lot of history there. Let me formally introduce you and then we can get into uh, the, some of the work we've done together. So, Tim, Tim Hartshorn is a professor of psychology and he specializes in school psychology at Central Michigan University. His doctoral degree is from the University of Texas at Austin, where he studied with Guy Manister, who is one of our noted Adlerians. He became president of the North American Society of Adlerian Psychology in June. 2020. We call that our NASAP. His research looks at charge syndrome, a relatively rare genetic disorder. He has published widely on behavior, parenting, family issues, and medical issues related to charge and severe disability. He is first editor of two editions of the book Charge Syndrome. The Charge Syndrome Foundation has also awarded him with Star in Charge, its highest honor. He's a frequent presenter throughout North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you so much, Allison. I'm excited to be here. So this is a, um, a new topic. We haven't delved into this on the podcast, so there's lots of range for us to discuss here. Um, and there are many people out there that have kids either with special needs or with disabilities, and I'm sure they're looking forward to this information. But probably most of them wouldn't have heard of CHARGE syndrome. So maybe a big starting place is, could, could you describe CHARGE and, and tell us a little bit about how you got involved with them? Yes, I'd love to. So the way I got involved in it is I have a son with CHARGE syndrome, and sometimes your personal life influences your professional life. 
charge is an acronym for some of the anomalies that occur with charge, but I think the simplest way to describe it is it's a sensory uh, impairment syndrome. Um, it's the leading genetic cause of deaf blindness. And many of the kids have limited vision and limited hearing, although that can vary. They may also have limited sense of smell. They may have balance issues, proprioceptive issues. So in fact, every sensory system can be affected in charge. It also has lots of gastrointestinal problems, um, all the way from chewing all the way to elimination. And there can be organ problems like heart defects are, are common in charge. Uh, it's a highly variable syndrome, which means there are people with charge who actually go to graduate school, and there are people with charge who have to be in a special needs program and they're you know, all their way through school and, and be cared for uh, through life. So that makes it really interesting because there's no, no two people are exactly alike. But they're all under the umbrella of this pretty comp. It sounds like it's a pretty complex, do you say syndrome, a proper? Right. It is yeah. a syndrome. It has caused by a specific gene, at least in the vast majority of cases. There's still things we're learning about charge. But um, yeah, it's, it's highly complex. What my students will often say, you know, if you know charge syndrome, you can work with anybody because you've covered all the bases. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you one of the great joys that I had was being a uh, attendee at one of the presentations that you put on at a, well, it was the it was the group of caretakers to your son Jacob. I, yes. And yes. how old is, how old is Jacob now? He's 32. 32. Well, so he, he would have been at the, I mean, they were telling stories of him when maybe he might have been in his teen years or. I would think so. That was in Atlanta. Yes. We drove down there. Yeah. And, 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 they, and they, yeah. They, it was such a fantastic presentation because they highlighted and quite heartfelt with so many personal stories um, about how much joy uh, and how much human learning the gifts that Jacob gave them, how much they grew <laughs> in getting to work with him, you know, as just yeah. as caregivers. And I love then when you very kindly um, asked if I would help contribute to a chapter um, in a in a uh, the book called um, the Handbook of Family Resilience. And right. our, we are particular. We, you had some students and myself and you, uh, but you really took the lead on that and. And that first draft, that was the other thing that stood out was you just talked about in the literature when you're a parent and you, you know, find out that you've got a child with, you know, special needs or disabilities, the literature out there tends to be almost morbid and macabre. And, and you said, there's another story that needs to be told. So <laughs> spread that message. Yeah, it, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, if you think about it, you're growing up, right, and with good circumstances, hopefully, and you look forward to someday I'll get married. And I'll have, you know, 2.5 children and, you know, and they'll grow up and someday I'll be a grandparent and you have this kind of vision of how your life is going to be. And then, you know, you get married and, you know, one of you gets pregnant and this child is born and, well, they might have all fingers and toes. There are clearly other things that are, are going wrong and suddenly you're thrown into this situation that you never anticipated you might have feared to a certain extent but you certainly never thought it was going to happen to you and now what do you do and you look around for help and support and resources and it's just not there right and so you're kind of confronted with this choice that i think we're confronted with often in life but certainly this is one of those times where i can collapse and disintegrate and you know lose it or I can rise to the occasion and try to figure it out on my own 
and see what I need to do. Now, the people that are falling apart, they're the ones that show up sometimes in clinics and you know health centers. And so the bias has been for many years that, oh, these parents are, are basket cases. They're hopeless. They, they're lost um, because that's who they saw. And what they missed and what I see so often is the amazing flourishing of many, many, many parents as they discover the richness of their life in areas they never would have anticipated. And I'm not the only one who would say that you know, Jacob is the greatest blessing of my life. I've learned more from Jacob than from any other thing in, or <laughs> situation or individual than, than anything else. That's all my learning comes from. And you know that's, that's a gift. So that's, of course, we want to help. And it wouldn't be nice if I didn't have to panic so much because there's nobody around there to support me. But actually, if there were supports in place already and you could identify those or the hospital could refer you to them, but they just kind of send you home with equipment to try to keep your child alive, it's a little scary. Yeah, and so here you are as the newbie parent um, with all these, uh, you know, I mean, you've told me some of the complexities of of having to just look after his care in the beginning. You know, I mean, for some of these children, just to your point, you feeding tubes and what if I, what if they pull out the feeding tube and they're mad at me and then, but you know, then we got to start again and then the, the wound doesn't close. And, you know, I mean, yep. these are, this is parenting <laughs> stuff. That's like, oh man, it's just sure. It's sure looking like that dawdling over putting your boots on seems like a walk in the park compared to some of these, you know, really feeling quite like life and death. And yet... And the, and the thing that I love about our background in Adlerian psychology, when people ask me like, oh, you know, do you work with kids that are whatever, have autism, or do you work with kids with this certain situation? And and I might say, you'll educate me on those pieces, but I come from this robust philosophy that, al that allows me to understand people, all people, with their, without exception. Um, and so there's some tenets that really ground us that, you know, and maybe some people that haven't had exposure to Adlerian psychology and have a special needs kid might, you know, might not have that same grounding that we have. Yeah, it's really interesting how we compartmentalize. And so we say, oh, this kid has all these disabilities. Therefore, nothing that we know applies. <laughs> right? But of course, it all does. There's still kids. They're still going through many of the same, if not all the same stages of development, maybe more slowly than other kids. But they still need parenting. And one of the things that <laughs> well, I'll, I was sitting with, with a couple at a conference on charge syndrome, and they were talking about their child's behavior. And I don't remember the details now, but it was clear this girl was a spoiled brat. <laughs> <Right? Yeah. laughs> you can be both a childhood <laughs> disabilities and a spoiled brat. They are not either I, or. <laughs> I pretty much pointed that out to the parents and got that recognition reflex where they, they smiled, looked at each other and said, see? <laughs> and said, you still have to have the courage to parent, the courage to discipline. You know, my son <laughs> lives in the house next door to us and he's got a charmed life, I think, over there with all these college students who are taking care of him, primarily all these gorgeous women. And he has a hot- <laughs> You're like, why <laughs> am I left? <laughs> you got the fuzzy end of the lollipop. <laughs> And he has a hot tub on his back porch and he loves, <laughs> loves to be in it and loves to be in it for a long time. And so sometimes 
they can't get him out of it. Right? He's actually pulled some of his caregivers into it. So we'll, we'll get a message saying, can someone come over and help get him out? And I walk over there and I roll up my sleeves and I look at him and I sign, get up. Okay. And he gets right out. Right. And they say, how'd you do that? Dad can get him to do anything. I said, because his whole life I've had limits. There's certain things that are not okay, Jacob. And, you know, we have to have consequences. If you're going to splash in the tub in such a way that all the water is emptying out, you're going to have to get out of the tub, right? So, so he learned we have a relationship where, yeah, he trusts me. I trust him. We communicate through sign or whatever, but I can get in his face and make a face. And he knows that, yeah, okay, <gasps> I might as well do what dad wants me to do. <laughs> yeah, setting limits and boundaries is part of our responsibility. And it's part of a child's responsibility to find the limits and boundaries by testing them. So everyone's, <laughs> it's not a disappointment. It's kind of how the system works. But it is. We have to warn all his new caregivers that he's going to test you. <laughs> like you might be taking him for a walk and suddenly he'll lie down on the ground and won't get up. And if people say cars have come by saying you need help, and I know I think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got this smirk on his face because he knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's they're they're brilliant. These kids, you know, like any other kid, they know how to test us. You know, they know to see how much they can get away with. And new caregivers of Jacob, he'll stick his foot up and they'll put his sock on for him. <laughs> and he don't know. <laughs> Hand him his socks and put them on. Oh, I didn't know he could do that. Yeah, of course he can do it. But if you'll do it for him, he's perfectly happy. Yeah, he, he'll let you. He'll let you put his socks on. <laughs> yeah. But you know the attitude is, and the fear is so strong that oh my gosh, if I can do something for this kid and take care of them then it'll be better. And, and, and so the, the, the spoiling, come, spoiling comes out of a good place. You know, I really want to take care of this child who's got all these problems. And if I can, you know, take care of any, any of the needs that they want and need, then I'll do that and I'll feel better as a parent. And so the, it's, it's very natural to spoil. It's natural to spoil any kid, particularly, particularly these kids. It's, life is easier if you just give them what they want. Yeah, and I worry that we might be seeing some of that with the pandemic, that I'm hearing this narrative of parents pitying their children for all the mm -hmm. missed opportunities that they've gotten and and that they're kind of like letting them off the hook from some of life's responsibilities. And, you know, if we see that as interfering in their growth, then, you know, it's sort of a way of spitting in a parent's soup. It might have made you feel good to to be caretaking and, and doing for, but you know, they've robbed themselves of feeling self-esteem from being capable and feeling autonomous and managing life and you know, slowing down their growth trajectory. Um, but I'm sure that it just with the, the wanting to ease somebody's burden is, is a natural parenting, uh, Absolutely. Be yeah. a beautiful part of our human nature that we need to control <laughs> in order for the, for the sake of the child. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always hard, you know. The kid spills their food and deliberately, probably, and you, I'll just get them some more, right? I mean, that's a natural thing. I don't want my kid to starve. And now he had all these medical complications in the first four years of life for many people with with syndromic, that word, <laughs> a genetic syndrome of some kind. 
is a lot of the first four years is keeping them alive. You know, going through surgeries is not unusual in the first four years for a kid with charge to have 25 surgeries. Um, some very serious, you know, major heart surgery, for example. And so, of course, you know, you want to do anything you can to, to, to ease their burden and make their life simple for them because of your anxiety and stress and guilt to a certain extent as well, because, you know, you're putting them through horrible experiences and you feel terrible about that. So, yeah, I knew a kid with charge syndrome. I had 12 vacuum cleaners because that's what he wanted. And his mom kept buying them for him. And of course, if, he, if, if she didn't, he'd have a big temper tantrum in the store, which is embarrassing. And so she would buy him another vacuum cleaner, <laughs> but taking care of him. And, and at some point, though, you know, as we hear that and we sort of think like, oh, that's crazy. Don't you always just, you know what? No parent is going to be perfect. We're all going to have our thing where we say, this is the thing I'm going to, I'm just going to be a softy around this because I just need the sanity. It just works for me. I can be stronger in different boundaries, but just let me solve the problem that way. And I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. And you get to a point where, okay, my kid's just lying on the bed doing nothing, but I'm okay with that because I need to lie on my bed and do nothing. <laughs> it's called taking a break. <laughs> I want to go over um, from one of the PowerPoint presentations. Um, you entitled a slide called the four invariant principles. And they were, and this is what I'm talking about. The Adlerians have this sort of through line that helps us understand things. All behavior has a purpose, that movement is from felt minus to felt plus. The third is that we have a natural tendency towards social interest. And the fourth is the that perfect courage is the courage to be imperfect. And I think that's very concise. And I want our listeners to kind of understand what each of those four things mean as we go through some of the some of those examples. So all behavior has a purpose. You know, that yeah. This purpose, is, this the is, purposefulness of, of behavior really differentiates us from a lot of other psychologies and that behavior is communication. We wrote a lot about in that chapter. This is probably, to me, the most important thing for parents to know, uh, especially in raising a kid like, like my son and, and, and others with, with severe disabilities, because you can look at the weird behaviors they engage in and say to yourself, that has to be stopped because that's just stupid, meaningless behavior. You know, that's just somebody with severe cognitive impairment engages in those behaviors because that's, they don't know anything else to do. It's just, you know, whatever. And we don't put, assume there's meaning in what they're doing. And, and my concern is that sometimes we take a behavior that's extremely annoying, but because it has no meaning from our perspective, we just try to get rid of it. And there's certainly behaviorists who are happy to help you get rid of behaviors. But the problem is the behavior is communication. The behavior has meaning. The behavior is a choice that the child made to solve a problem that they're experiencing. You know, one simple kind of example is in charge syndrome, a parent will say, you know, we have like 8,000 people on the charge Facebook page and they'll say to the group, my child just likes to lean over and almost hang upside down all the time. How do you get rid of that? 
not knowing that's a very, very common charge behavior. So why in the world would a kid with charge syndrome want to hang upside down? What meaning and purpose could there possibly be in that? We should, I know schools who say we can't allow that here in the school. That's not appropriate behavior. Well, we have to understand that the kids with, with charge syndrome, for one thing, have significant balance issues it's from the inner, inner ears are messed up. And so they just don't have the vestibular sense. And also they have a weak muscles. So you know how much effort it takes to hold your head up. You know, it takes a lot of muscles in the neck and shoulders, but it also, your balance system keeps your head up straight. Now try hanging upside down and your head is perfectly straight, right? It just hangs there and it's still. And so if I'm experiencing my world where my head is wobbling around all the time, wouldn't it be nice to stop that and hang upside down for a bit where my head can be in a good position? I don't have to worry about it. Um, also, the kids with charge are typically missing their upper visual field. And so they're looking out of lower vision, which means they often tip their head back. If you're upside down, you're looking through your lower visual field. So if you want to watch something, it's a great position to be in without having to tip your head. Also, when they're lying down, they're typically getting a lot of feedback on because the, their body is against a couch or chair or something. And so proprioceptively, they're identifying and getting pressure on parts of their body to let them know where their body is. Um, so there's just so many good reasons for hanging upside down. And so once we understand that, I'm not telling saying that we should go encourage it, but my child does it. I'm not going to rush in there and say, no, 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 don't do it. Because what happens then? You know, my response to your behavior is communication to you. So if all behavior is communication, you're communicating something to me through your behavior. By hanging upside down, I might be saying, essentially, I need a break. I need a break where I don't have to worry about my head. I can feel my body. I can look through my eyes, what vision I have naturally. Um, and you're saying no and stopping it. That's ruining the communicative relationship. Right? How we respond to any child's behavior is communication back to that child. And we really have to be careful then. You know, one kid runs up and hits another kid. Well, you can't do that. Right? And we get all mad. And we, we do strict punishment and all that kind of stuff. But what are we telling to the kid? You know, we're saying essentially, we're going to come down on you for anything that you might do. If we go over and in a supportive way implement a consequence, right, then it's not me imposing something on you. It's you having chosen to do a behavior that you're aware is going to have a certain kind of consequence. And we can maintain that relationship. I worry sometimes because when kids start engaging in behavior, which parents don't understand and can't deal with, that they take them to physicians of various types who prescribe medication to stop the behavior, and then the child's lost an ability to communicate to you what's going on with them. And, you know, we don't want to stop communication. The most important parenting principle, I think, is communication, building communication. And particularly difficult with someone who is non-vocal, maybe doesn't hear you because they're deaf, um, may ultimately need a few signs and pictures and gestures to communicate. But you can learn that and, and work through that with your child if you believe that your child's behavior has communicative intent. It's like a baby crying, Allison, right? You know, they have all those different cries. 
And as we begin to recognize, oh, that's the tired cry, that's the hungry cry, that's the irritated cry, right? And then we respond to them differentially. We're building that relationship. We're building communication. You know, we're building attachment, if you like. And everybody needs that. Yeah, that that relational part when you've got so a more narrow range of channels right. with, with kids that might have some limitations. Um, right. So you don't want to close down any more of those. Um, but we still have to have we, we have to find that balance between getting the child's needs met, hearing their communication, but also, to your point, limits and boundaries and socializing the child. So um, I have two examples I want to walk through. So parents get an example of, of uh, one is a question that, that um, we shared during, or that you shared during that. But there's also a good one that I remember just as you were speaking about. Wasn't it when, didn't Jacob used to get really excited when his um, occupational therapist would come? And maybe it was another child that you told physical, the story. Physical therapist. Physical therapist. Yeah, tell, oh, that, yeah, tell that, would, that story. Well, we had one come during the summer one time, and, and he would just, I mean, he was like two years old. He would cry. He would be really, really upset. And she would say, oh, he's just trying to manipulate me. And we said, no, I think he's in pain. I think you're hurting him. Oh, no, he's just manipulating me. Oh, we got rid of that person in a hurry. Um, you know, you have to recognize that crying is not always manipulation. <laughs> can it be? Absolutely. But, but a parent can tell, no, that's not the, I'm trying to get something from you cry. That's the, things I'm really, okay. really upset. And things yeah. are not okay. Exactly. And, you, and just in those last two examples, you have to advocate for your child. You had to say, no, you might be the physical therapist, but I know my kid and you might be the doctor who wants to prescribe this medicine, but I don't want my kid sedated or, you know, you, you to, to, to advocate is another whole part of this too. Here's another example of, of somebody who was really challenged where, you know, on the one hand, you want the child's communicating and she's, uh, expressing herself but you can see where this gets in the way of family functioning <laughs> so here's the so here's the question for you it says um um my daughter has ocd obsessions and they are our biggest battle one is water she has to get her clothing wet before she can take them off and she needs to change her clothes often I've tried making her stop both, but she just goes over the edge. I have finally come to the approach that I can't stop her, but I need to just try to control the amount of water she gets when she soaks her clothes. If we take the water away, she will pee on them. So we have a choice of either of either water supply here, but it's going to happen one way or another from the well or from her bladder. Is it wrong to help her with the water? Am I saying it's okay and feeding the obsession, but I have little hope of getting her to stop. And so I don't know what to do and what harm I am, am doing, if any, by allowing it. Her obsession seems to have come from routines that turn into habits and then into true obsessions. If I would have noticed this earlier, do you think I could have prevented some of this? You know, it's, it's, you hear the, the guilt, you know, and that's the one thing that I want parents to get rid of if they can, you know, kids will do stuff. And we're not always the cause. And we're not always the solution either, though probably we need to be more often than not. Um, talk about obsessive compulsive disorder for, for a moment. I mean, many, many people engage in obsessions and compulsions and don't really have OCD. Um, but why do we engage in these is often for security in some way. Um, you know, we're nervous or we're living in unpredictable kinds of situations. 
you probably suspect that COVID has led to a lot of obsessive and compulsive behaviors in people. Um, so that's kind of a natural thing. Um, but as soon as we label it that, then suddenly we have to bring in the psychiatrist and psychologist and all these people to do something about it. And I need to suggest taking a deep breath and saying, okay, first of all, is what this child's doing is it harming anybody? And if it's not harming anybody, then I don't feel that I have to figure out what to do and be successful in doing it immediately, right? If she's banging her head, that's a different circumstance, right? If she's biting people, that's a different circumstance. She's just wetting herself. Okay, that's annoying, right? And that's going to take me more time as a parent to deal with. But um, it's not something that I'm, I'm going to be, oh, my God, this is terrible, awful. I've got to do something right away. Having said that, it's something you want, to, you want to do something about. So I'm going to assume that it began as something that was interesting for the child or it solved the problem she was experiencing at that moment. I do know that kids with charged syndrome, and this is a kid with charged syndrome, love the water. I mean, they would spend all day in the bathtub probably if, they're, if they were able to. And this is common actually in lots of other syndromes as well. So it may, to a certain extent, just been... I really like water. Let me get wet right now. Oh, this is kind of cool. And then it does can become kind of habit forming after that. But to first of all, to say, okay, it's not meaningless. It, it began for a reason. The child chose it to solve a problem. What problem might it be solving for them if they're continuing it besides just a compulsive thing? Maybe it's just pleasurable for them. Although the peeing on the clothes is, that's interesting. <laughs> so the but, so would the pleasurable fall under the category of the second tenet of, of of movement from felt minus to felt plus? You know that's 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 a really good thought, Allison. And I, you know, the the basic idea is that all of us are trying to find ways to move from feeling lousy about ourselves to feeling better about ourselves, right? From incompetence to competence. And this is certainly a kid who has figured out something to do that they probably enjoy. Now, when it gets to the point where they're no longer enjoying it and no one's enjoying it, that's a whole different issue. All kids are seeking competence. And look what I can do. And then I do it again. And I do it again. And we have to also worry about the parent reaction to it because, again, it's a communicative relationship. And so if parents have this Oh my goodness, what's going on? It's terrible. That's really fun. <laughs> I'm going to do that some more. <laughs> right. So, you know, I recommend parents stay as calm as they possibly can. Okay, I'm going to have to deal with this by obviously changing my daughter's clothes and putting stuff in the, in the laundry. But of course, the kids should be participating in that, right? So if, if I wet all my clothes, what do we do with those, right? Well, we pick them up and you should be picking them up with me and we put them in the washer and we put the detergent in and later we dry them and we get them out and we fold them so the kid realizes that you know, they're engaging in a behavior which does have consequences and you're going to participate in that. I know that this, this parent worked to reduce the amount of the cloth that had to be wet 
So I think it got it down to just a sleeve had to be wet. <laughs> and, and isn't that, that's, I just think that's such a, a great, you know, in the beginning she tried the all like, just stop it. She really kind mm. of, you know, put a fist down and not allow this, these shenanigans or whatever. But when she switched her tactic and just sort of said, how do I, how do we work together? You know, you need to, you're communicating, you need to do this for some reason uh, that I need to honor, even if I don't necessarily understand it. And yet I need dry floors and I don't want to be doing laundry all day long. Um, how, how can we work together? And, and they, 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 they made it a manageable, a more socially interested, cooperative approach with that, you know, little water on the sleeve. Okay. Or, you know, go stand in the bathtub where the excess water doesn't go on the carpets or, you know, like they worked <laughs> exactly. it out together. Exactly. It is a, it's a, it's a relationship. And so we have to learn to cooperate with each other so that all of our needs are met as much as possible. And if the child needs to have wet clothes before she takes them off, for whatever reason, to just dismiss that as something that you may never do again, and we're going to put you in the corner or whatever we do, is not going to work. You know, you're going to develop that power struggle where the kid will argue with you and whatever behaviors they have. And so many of these kids we're talking about develop extreme aggressive behavior of kicking and biting and punching. And I hate to see that because I don't think it's a part of the syndrome. <laughs> you know, it's the result of the lack of, of communication, lack of cooperation, the lack of courageous discipline, right? And, and creative discipline too, with, with natural logical consequences. And also recognizing when a behavior is worth having a stink about it and when it's just, I can accept that my kid just does that you know, and, and why not? You know, it doesn't hurt anybody. And it doesn't hurt me. If it's not inconveniencing me, then why do I need to even make it? But if, as long as you do make a deal about it, you know, you see kids who break television sets. Oh, my gosh. Why would the kid bust the television set? What problem are they trying to solve? Well, I think it's a sensory, probably initially. I don't always know, but the kid may be overwhelmed by the vision. You know, we... <laughs> television it has to every well, every 10th second it has to change <laughs> it's a change scene and that if you watch for a while just can, can drive you nuts if you have any kind of sensory issues going on and at some point you may have i can't handle this anymore and you run over there and you and you bang it and then the reaction is really fun <laughs> and so it gets repeated over and over again really a hard one because the family after a while <laughs> you know, doesn't have a tv anymore and everybody is resentful and angry and the kids know better. So if we begin by saying, okay, that was a horrible behavior. We don't want that going on anymore, but it had a reason. I wonder what the reason is and trying to, to test that out. Maybe you can look at other sensory situations and see how the re child responds there. How does the child like bright lights? Do they like spinning things? You know, what, try to see what might have been going on there. And that's not, maybe other issues as well, but there is a reason, you know, and we, without knowing the reason and without having faith that there's a reason, it's so much harder to try to do anything about it without destroying the relationship that you might have. I mean, putting the kid in time out, most of our kids enjoy being in their room by themselves, so it doesn't really help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing is that I imagine it would be the same that 
sometimes when our kids are acting in ways that we're not appreciating because we haven't taken the time to be curious about what they might be trying to communicate and that there might be validity in what they're trying. If all we do is just see it as my parenting is failing or I should be doing something differently, or we, you know, we take it that it's directed at us, you know, right. a, dis, a dysregulated kid who's kicking you in the shins and you, you think they hate me, um, right. they might just be taking care of their business. Right. And um, so I think it, that stay calm and, and step back, take that deep breath and and have perspective. And I'm sure that goes great for the first day, but you know, <laughs> when you've been raising kids for 32 years and this is, I mean, it isn't ex- to your point, it's, you know, it's an, ex- it's an exhausting, it is exhausting endeavor. And I think these parents really need to have that community. I'm so glad you have that Facebook well, that, page. That's them. another really important thing is the support out there. I mean, I probably get average an email a week saying, my kid's doing this. Could you help me figure out? And and I'm happy to do it. Uh, I don't always know what to say, but I'm happy to try. But, you know, before we had email and internet and social media, parents had no place to turn. I, no wonder they ended up in mental health centers and were defined as, you know, hopelessly damaged people. And, and, you know, hearing from another parent who says, I got, you know, you, your kid has 12 vacuum cleaners, but my kid has, you know, 27 guitars or, or whatever it might be. You're not <laughs> exactly. going to get that same response from, from the, you know, uh, care practitioner at the hospital or at your pediatric visit, because they might be, they might know this population, but they're not living day in and day out in the trenches. I think you really have to hear it from your own. That, that's, that is like the mm-hmm. sole comforting piece. I'm not alone. Other people have this. Other people get it. You don't get that necessarily from a professional. I think you get that from your community, right? That's right. Um, So these last two I want to cover, the the natural tendency towards social interest and then the perfect courage to be imperfect, as those last two Adlerian tenets that apply to all kids. Well, as we know, as Adlerians, we're all social beings, right? We can't live without society. One of the things we've always felt was extremely important is for Jacob to be a part of his community. So we had an inclusion program through, through a lot of his schooling. Um, we encourage his, his uh, caregivers to take him out around the community. If people come up to him and say, hi, Jacob, his caregivers are allowed to respond and tell them about how Jacob's doing, which, you know, recipient rights requirements, are you not allowed to do that with someone with a disability? But no, he's a part of his community. Because how are you going to um, develop a sense of, social interest, which is feeling like I have something to contribute to the world, something to contribute to my, to the community, something to contribute to my family. If the message you get from everybody is you take away, right? You're taken away from, from our ability to express our own social interest, which is, that's, that's really, really sad. So when you look at what Jacob offers to people, I mean, even <laughs> when he was in kindergarten, okay, regular kindergarten, right? And the teacher got a big refrigerator box because thought that's the place for Jacob to go into when he needs to get away from everybody. And she has some things hanging from the top that he could, he could bat. But the problem was that Jacob run it, would run into that. And the next kid would run into it. The next kid would run into it. There'd be four kids in that box. He, he made it the hot spot, did he? <laughs> he made it the hot spot. Jacob, Jacob was the cool kid. There was a kid running for a sixth grade class president and the first thing she put on her list of what she her activities was member of Jacob's circle of friends right so 
you know, and by seventh grade, my gosh, all the cool kids were in his circle of friends. I don't think they cared about Jacob very much, but they wanted to be part of this great group. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, Jacob, for Jacob to feel like he contributes, he's got to, she, he, he influences people. That's why we talked about the power of Jacob, because we know he does influence people. And I yeah. think there's an extent to which he kind of gets that. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to know um, how he senses his place in, in the world, and, and just even in his house, except he rules his house. About that. <laughs> <laughs> which is why independence is so important, helping the kids develop independence. You know, Jacob's independence skyrocketed after he moved away from us. <laughs> well, you know, that's a really great point that you make because, you know, as you said, when you first find out that you get a diagnosis from the hospital, that you're not going to have a, you know, a neurotypical child or a physically typical child. And you start thinking, okay, so that dream of raising kids and retiring and moving away. And now you think, oh, how long am I going to have this as a child who's going to be dependent for a long time? But you've done an amazing job in getting him set up and, and creating that support around so that, you know, you're there, you're close, but he's, he's a grown man. He was 21. Get out of here, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> you're launched. <laughs> I'm not going to have any of my kids live at home when they're <laughs> 21, <laughs> but we were fortunate. Um, that circumstances could work out for that. But yeah, also, I realize that's not the case for all families, not that they don't it, have the intention, not, but the means can be hard. But, but don't give up on the ideas. Right. Right. We never say never with with kids with disabilities, you know, and, and I realized that to a certain extent I was holding him back because it's much easier for me to do for Jacob than make Jacob do for himself. But next door where people are paid, <laughs> right, they can sit back and say, hey, Jacob, you do it. I'm not doing that for you. And uh, it doesn't take extra time away from their busy schedules because they're being paid to just be there. If Jacob wants to take 45 minutes to eat his lunch, it doesn't matter. When he was with me, yeah, it mattered because I had other things to do than to sit there while he eats his lunch, right? So, yeah. But that's probably to a certain extent true of all our kids. We send them, you know, they, they leave home for college, leave home because they're getting married, or leave home for whatever reason. And suddenly <laughs> they're saying, wow, look what I have to take care of here. <laughs> and don't they always, to your point, and aren't we more typically surprised that they actually rise to the occasion or always had it in them? It's, it's very few that actually say, oh, you know what? I had no idea. My, my child doesn't know how to use a fork and knife. I didn't I forgot. <laughs> It's All fun the, when you visit them and they do. <laughs> well, I do remember my daughter, uh, we went out looking for graduation gowns or whatever. And so I hadn't gone shopping with her for forever because she was, you know, whatever, 18 years old and would go with her sister. And while we were out trying on shoes, I watched her put on her running shoes and she tied the, the laces with the bunny ears. And I said, you don't know how to do the other bow? The, and she's like, no, you only ever taught me the bunny ears. And I'm like, oh, I guess I, I, guess I forgot. That. <laughs> you got independent at five and I never circled back to upgrade you. <laughs> because that's faster. I'm sticking with this. <laughs> uh, so there's my, yeah, one of my many examples of the perfect courage to be imperfect. So, so oh, Im God, imperfect parent, courageous, imperfect parenting. Speak to, speak to us about that. Well, we begin with the with a clear understanding that we are all imperfect. But having the courage 
is I mean, it's easy for me to say, oh, yeah, Tim, I'm imperfect. I get that. Sure. But then when I think about it and try to implement it, it did. No, I hate that, right? <laughs> Having the real courage to be imperfect is something, is something completely different. But in raising a kid with severe disabilities, you have to find that courage to do it in spite of feeling like you're totally ignorant and totally unskilled and totally inept when it comes to trying to do it. And I mean, that's not just imperfect. It's like, I, I worried when the hospital sent me home that I would figure out how to put diapers on, right? <laughs> you know, how, how do I take care of that? When, when we came home with Jacob, we had, you know, feeding tubes and apnea monitor and suction machines. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit different, right? You got a medical degree, like on the, you know, uh, <laughs> overnight. You, you pretty much have to. But one of the things that's so important is that as we develop that courage is that people start thinking that we're in denial about it, right? I remember we were talking to a social worker or something about Jacob's respite care. And I was saying, you know, the, the, the county had a finite amount of money for respite care. And I said, you know, we're doing fine. There's probably some other kid out there with needs greater than Jacob who could use the respite care money. And the social worker looked at us and said, <laughs> you may not recognize this, but Jacob's the highest need person we've got in the county. And I had, I had no idea. There's been lots of attempts to measure how much stress parents are experiencing from having a kid with disabilities. And they have for many years used this one particular true false instrument, which I don't know that people are using it anymore because I know I've written about how horrible it is. And maybe that's, that's helped. But it's like our family, our other children have had to give up things because of Jacob. If you say true to that, you are more stressed. If you say false to that, you're a damn liar. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course, it's... the other kids have had to miss out on things because of Jacob. Yeah. Despite how hard we work to make it possible for them to still have as typical a life as possible, of course they've missed out on something, certainly time, because we had to put more time into Jacob. You know, I worry about what will happen to Jacob in the future. If you say yes to that, you're stressed. If you say, I mean, you say, yeah, but if you say no to that, where are, how could you not be worried about what happened to him in the future? So people think that when we are showing the courage that we've developed over the time of raising a child that we've accepted that this is a part of our life and that's fine it's good it's not a, it's not a terrible thing that we're somehow in huge denial about what the circumstances really is which maybe we were <laughs> initially that he was how severe it was but i don't think you know, it wasn't that we didn't see how severe it was just we didn't realize that comparatively <laughs> it was really tough um it was just that's life with Jacob, and it's good. It's fine. We're, we're managing it. We're dealing with it. Do we screw up frequently? Of course we do. We're parents. As my father used to say, a parent's duty is to screw up their kids to an extent so our kids can actually be able to meet the challenges of life. <laughs> if parents were perfect, then kids wouldn't know how to go out there into the world and survive. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. So I gave my kids much good training. Uh, <laughs> I, just want, I, I don't know if people know that we have a journal of individual psychology. And if you are interested in, in Tim's article, um, mistaking courage for denial is in um, the 58th edition. So it was a big enough issue for you that you took the time to, to write that journal article about it. Well, I was doing research on parents, parenting stress and came across this instrument and that's what everybody was using, but we did it differently. We did it orally. And so I started reading the questions to the parents. And I said, this is stupid. <laughs> this isn't going to tell you anything about how stressed the parents are. Yeah. So I what do you recommend? How, so, so have they come up with a substitute? I don't know. Or, and, and, do we, and do we measure stressors? Or I mean, how do we look at resiliency? How does, how does parental resiliency play into this since it's such a big buzzword right now? Yeah, I mean, there is the Parenting Stress Index to answer your first okay. question, which I've used, and I think it's, it's much better. Yeah, resilience, whatever, whatever that means and wherever it comes from, but the ability to rise above all the... Well, it's, a, it's kind of a self-writing thing, isn't it? You get knocked over and you write yourself back up. You get knocked over again and you write yourself back up. I think that's probably the clearest definition of resiliency. But remember, you're still getting knocked over, <laughs> right? And so... We'll take those blows, and then we say to ourselves, I can manage this. And somewhere you got to dig deep to that place where you, I can manage this. I will survive. I will handle this. And you write yourself back up there, and you do it again, <laughs> even though I don't know if this story works at all. But, you know, we've talked about how Jacob used to get into his feces and smear them, and we left our two youngest kids home one time. They were, I think, Seth's probably 12. And we were going that we're going for like an hour. And we came back in and Jacob was in the bathtub and his clothes were I don't know if he put them in the laundry yet, but Jacob had gotten his feces and Seth and Aaron had coped. It was just amazing to me. I actually I don't believe necessarily in, in reinforcement, but I did reach into my billfold and hand him <laughs> Seth five dollars. <laughs> Thanks for looking after your brother, well earned. <laughs> but you know, and he could have been just knocked down by it and just shut Jacob into the bathroom and locked the door or something, but but he didn't. He coped. And that's how many times have, have we all done that when things are just overwhelming and I can't deal with this anymore. And I, I've seen these emails from parents saying, I, what do you do in the middle of the night? You just want to scream and I need someone not just to help my kid, someone to help me because I don't know if I can manage it anymore. And you know what they need is someone to say, you're right. None of us really knows how we, how we survive this. Yeah. Because if people, if all they get is, oh, no, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Then you build in your mind, well, an argument, right? Well, no, I really can't. Oh, yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. But when we say, yeah, I hear you. This is tough. This is hard. I have those moments in the middle of the night when, when I just want to cry. It doesn't mean that I'm not resilient. It doesn't mean that I don't have the courage to be imperfect. It doesn't mean that I haven't learned stuff from this situation. And Jacob's no longer the greatest blessing in my life. It's just I'm human. How much can we take of the fears and the uncertainties? And yeah, it's, this, is, this is hard. This is, you're running a marathon, people. It's not a sprint. I remember my mother saying, you know, the time in your life when you're raising your kids is really relatively short. 
Well, she lived to 103. So <laughs> oh, well, that bodes well for you, Tim. <laughs> it probably was. But for me, it was a heck of a lot longer than she was raising kids at home. You know? And, yeah. you know, he said, I want to. Your friends are saying, hey, let's go out to dinner. And I say, I'd love to go out to dinner with you. But we'll have to find someone who's trained to take care of Jacob. Right? I just couldn't <laughs> get a regular babysitter. Yeah. And here I am in my 60s and still getting a babysitter. I said, wait a minute, you know, what's wrong with this picture? So it's not a it's it's not a rose garden, it's not a cakewalk. It is tough. It's absolutely tough. And anybody denying that it's tough has not experienced that. And so we support each other by crying together much more than trying to insist that you're strong. By the way, don't ever tell a parent who's going through a tough situation like this that, oh, you're so strong. I just want to hit a person who says, I'm not strong. What's the better response? Everyone's going, no, what should I say? I have lots of people like that. What would be the better response? <laughs> well, I would even prefer, um, you know, I can't imagine how you do that. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, it's not that bad because I want to minimize it, right? But you tell me, oh, you're so strong. It's like that stupid heaven special child where God looked around for the right parents to give this special needs kid to and failed to. Maybe I didn't have some blood on my door or something, but it failed to, <laughs> <laughs> to move on. They were like, go down the block. Go down the block. <laughs> I'm sure there's some people down there would love it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, no, it's, you know, it's a random thing. It happened. And then you, you either rise up to the occasion, you discover that resiliency, you discover the courage to be imperfect, you discover there are people out there who get it, who can talk to you in a, in a way that um, is meaningful. You know, when I, some of my greatest presentations that I felt so good about is when I can be in front of a, of a group of parents with child syndrome and I can have them laughing one moment and crying the next moment because we're getting into the raw emotions, both the joys and the ridiculousness of some of the things that we experience, as well as the loneliness and sense of isolation and despair that we also all experience from time to time. And I don't think this is just parents of kids with severe disabilities. I suspect this is all parents. At, but, at, different, um, at different times, I'm sure you're, you're right. Um, oh, the community is so lucky to have you, Tim. You've got, you have made, you didn't just sit there as a parent, you know, uh, looking for resources. You went out and you made them and you connected people and you put yourself out there and you've done so much. Is there anything else you want to make sure that our listeners today um, have that I might have missed or that's important to our conversation before we, we wrap up? And I'll give you an opportunity to kind of let us know where we can keep finding you. And I'll put stuff in the show notes, obviously. There's one thing that we didn't touch on, and that's the importance of regularities. You know, for most people, we're, we've, we're all over the, over the map on that. I'm a very routinized person. I admit it. <laughs> you know, boring. But I do like a certain structure to my life. Yeah. My wife doesn't. <laughs> you know? When I'm gone, the routine kind of falls apart. And uh, that's fine. You know, we all have differences. And I don't think everybody should be as structured in their life as I am, where you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and they have kind of planned out. But you're raising a kid with severe disabilities, especially one with sensory impairments, can tell you how important that is because they 
do not often have enough control over determining what they're going to do, that they're dependent on what you have them do. And if they don't know what you're going to have them do, they might be lying on their bed and you come in and you stand them up and you march out and you get in the car. And am I going five minutes to the grocery store? Am I going 10 hours to visit relatives? I don't know what's happening. And the panic and anxiety that they experience and some of the I know one mother was like, my kid, you know, we're driving and he's pounding me on the back on my back because he thinks we're going to go one place. And I'm not going that direction, but he didn't know. I didn't tell him where we were going. You know, sleep is a real problem for a lot of kids with especially vision impairments, but, but disabilities in general. One of the best interventions for sleep problems is a positive bedtime routine. You know, so we get into our jammies, we wash we have a story, we have a hug and a kiss, and we get into bed. And going through those steps gets the body ready to go to sleep. I think our kids often need a longer period of positive bedtime routine. So that, you know, maybe even right after dinner, if everybody's running around like crazy and everybody's getting really hyper, it's going to be hard for them to settle down. But if the family has kind of a predicted schedule, and if it needs to be some running around, fine, but make it early. Right, right. <laughs> yes. To, so to the energy so, is coming down into right. the unwind. So I've said to parents when I'm giving presentations, okay, some of you are not highly regulated, but learn to. Because yes. <laughs> it will only benefit your child. We have to have ways to communicate to our kids what's happening. Routine is one way. There are visual calendar systems and stuff that can also be utilized, but whatever we can do to make life predictable and give as much control and choice as possible is only going to help the kid with their development and, and, and emerging independence. Yeah. Beautiful. And again, just as applicable to, to any parent where we, we, we could all take a look at how much, you know, we wag the finger at kids for their emotional regulation. And then, and then we realize that's because we want them regulated so that we don't have to regulate. It's like, well, hold on, maybe we could also learn because I, you, I would love to see you lose it, Tim. You are, you are the, <laughs> I'd like to be the fly on the wall when you lose it because you it's are. Not you pretty. Are the, <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> and, and I'm saying, I, I'm actually, I, I do not lose my temper cool, but I am more late, but on the rare occasion that I do, I do it with finesse. Let me tell you. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> but, I, I, but I am mostly a pretty steady state person. It takes a lot to kind of really, really rile me up. But uh, um, so how, how great that, that would put me at an easier stance than other people who are very kind of highly affectious to the ups and down moods. And you would really, you would really have to take that on as a parenting challenge to, to do your own work in those situations, I bet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll see you soon at, uh, in May at NASAP. Yes, everybody should come. Yes, Alexandria, I, Virginia. It's going to be a great program. And I, I want the parent listeners to know, and I'll put a link to registration in the show notes as well. There is a specific parenting track. So we, you know, we obviously we have people there that are Adlerian counselors and, and um, uh, uh, clinicians and whatnot. But we also know there's a lot of people that just love Adlerian psychology and love parent education. And there is a whole subgroup, sub uh, section that you can join. And we try to lump together the parenting offerings so that you can uh, catch those at the conference and meet other parents and 
bring your kids and have have fun with us all. We're, we're a great oh, welcoming group. So yeah. I'll put the link in registration. I'm going to be presenting on uh, power struggles. And then I've also got the the um, chargesyndrome.org uh, link great. there as, as well. Um, so I'll put that up in the show notes too. Anything else to, to let people know about? Don't be afraid. Right. Walk I mean, it sounds on like this. through the stars. <laughs> it sounds overwhelming. Yeah. Right. And if I'm a parent educator and I'm thinking, how could I possibly help this family? Use what you know. Use what you know and be somewhat guided by, you know, what they're experiencing. And, you know, the kind of the Adlerian things we've talked about are so helpful, particularly that the child is choosing the behavior because it solves a problem for them. If you can keep that in mind, it will help you so tremendously. And parents, you're not alone, right? We tend to be isolated, unfortunately, but but getting connected, joining organizations for disability, you know, meeting other parents, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So do it. Go find your people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're one of my people, Tim. Thank you so <laughs> much. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Allison. It's so much fun to, to see you and and, and chat, and we don't get enough time to chat together. I know we, we always enjoy it so much, and we're able to, but we're always so busy, we forget. So I this know. has been very fun. Well, let's, let's stay connected and do it again, and I'll see you in person soon. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with juvederm volbella xc or juvederm ultra xc do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.